This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. So we had the Global Mining Symposium. David Rosenberg had a ton of interesting things to say. So he did not disappoint. So did a whole lot of other people, including EY and Amazon Web Services and everybody else. It was a... I think they could call it another success. I haven't talked to the team directly about it, but it sounds like it's gone quite well. We should have some videos coming in the coming days. If you missed it, we may also post some of the talks on the podcast in the coming weeks. So stock markets at record highs. We have Bitcoin has broken $17,000. The reason I keep bringing crypto up And I know it's a polarizing thing, and some people hate crypto. kind of get it because I've been on the other side of that. But I think the big question and why I bring it up on a mining podcast, because the real kind of underlying question with Bitcoin is, is it displacing gold? And I know that's a grand claim and statement, and I'm not claiming it, but I mean, that is one of the underlying questions here. It seems that if you want to get the most bang for your buck in dealing with a potential inflation scenario, a lot of the more, should we say, speculative people or the people who feel, you know, which includes, as we said, Stan Druckenmiller, as we mentioned last week and even played a little clip of, uh, they're going, if they want a little more alpha, if they want a little more risk and higher asymmetric gains, they're going to Bitcoin over gold, seems to be what's going on. So this is why it matters to us. So it's important that we just sort of keep tabs of what's going on over there. Digital gold, as they call it. And so speaking of metals, we have a spectacular interview here for you. I interviewed Platinum Group's metal CEO, R. Michael Jones. Now, their uh, corporate public relations person had reached out to us, and I, I get sort of approached fairly regularly by companies that want to basically promote their company. And there's nothing wrong with that. People, you know, just saying, hey, this person is available if you want to speak to them. So Chris Begick from Platinum Group Metals, who is VP of Corporate Development, had reached out. Sounds like he listened to the podcast, so that always helps. So And he was saying that the CEO, R. Michael Jones, was available for an interview. And I am curious about Platinum. So this time I said, okay, let's see. And I'm glad I did because it's actually a totally fascinating interview. Not only do you learn about how massive their property is, I think it's called Waterberg in South Africa, but you also learn how they're doing development and they just got a patent on a palladium lithium ion battery. Hope I'm saying that right. I I think you'd put ion in there. And so Platinum Group Metals is kind of starting to be a bit of a, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but starting to be a tiny bit of a tech play. At least you judge for yourself. Like you you listen to this interview. It's a 30 minute, really, uh, I I just re-listened to the episode to edit it. And, uh, I think it's quite an interesting episode, and I think for anybody that's in the PGM space, it's a must-listen, because I also asked 
Mr. Jones about his outlook on platinum and palladium. And remember, I asked this of Jeffrey Christian, and Jeffrey Christian seemed to agree with me that platinum was a little bit what I was calling the forgotten metal. Now, it's interesting, our Michael Jones, the CEO of Platinum Group Metals, he's not so bullish on platinum. He's sort of, he sees the use of platinum actually going down. So it's interesting. So if you're into the PGMs and what's going on over there, and I think that would include electric vehicle people, you definitely want to listen to this and some very interesting developments that, of all people, Platinum Group Metals are working on in the battery life domain. And it all started with a Google search. So you can listen to that. It's all there in our feature content. So excited to present you with that. It's a pretty long interview. So uh, let's get right to the program. So if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Instagram at the Northern Miner. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. And you can also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn. And we also post these podcasts on YouTube. And you can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever podcasts are available. And with that, let's turn to the news. We have a couple of stories on David Rosenberg. So we're going to open up and see what he's saying. And turning to the website, economist David Rosenberg says, mad, mad world driving gold bull market. And for those of you who don't know David Rosenberg, he is chief economist and strategist at Rosenberg Research and Associates. And yeah, he is a very well-known figure on Wall Street and he's Canadian. I think he's back in Toronto. So anyway, so he was one of our headliners at the Global Mining Symposium. So we have a little story. Anthony Vaccaro, group publisher of the Northern Miner, interviewed him. And so let's just get right into it here. And he said, in a world where Greek bonds trade at a discount to treasuries, in a world where central banks are buying junk bonds, I don't even know how you can even talk about an appropriate asset mix, he said during an hour-long conversation with Anthony Vaccaro. And fair enough, Greek bonds trading at a discount to treasuries. And he continues, gold is a ballast in the portfolio. It's a source of stability and it's an insurance policy against things going wrong because when things go wrong, central banks tend to print more money and your gold is tangible, your gold is real. According to Rosenberg, quote, we're in a world where central banks have taken over. It's hard to disagree with that. And whether it's U.S. Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell or Christine Lagarde, president of the European Central Bank, or any other central bank for that matter, they are, quote, operating a casino, end quote. They are like, quote, the blackjack dealers handing out the chips for free, end quote. So a bit of an indictment on central banks. Rosenberg shakes his head in disbelief. And we have another quote. The two-year Greek bond yield is negative six basis points. That is pretty crazy, isn't it? The two-year Greek bond yield is negative six basis points, negative six, and their 10-year yield is trading 15 basis points below where 10-year treasuries are. That's a junk bond. So we live in a world of capital markets where a junk bond credit trades at a discount to the most liquid and safest security on the planet, which are U.S. treasuries. 
So if there's a common theme here so far, it's that prices are getting distorted by central banks. And he continues, Greece is just an extreme example. It's a bond trading with a negative yield, but we have over $17 trillion in funds globally. That's with a T. You're talking like about a third of the global bond market trades with a negative yield. So how do you do your valuations when you're doing your dividend discount model or you're doing your cap rate model for real estate? You're trying to discount flows. Well, in a negative rate world, they just go to infinity. It's an interesting point. Again, I think that's part of the attraction to Bitcoin because it's just simple. And it's like everything's getting out of whack in our traditional financial system here. He continues, what I try and do is bring common sense and fundamentals to the analysis. And just a quick aside here, there is a certain tradition of economists from my perspective, and I'm not an expert on this, but who is very much the common sense economist. And David Rosenberg is in that tradition, who kind of just looks at the world and makes sense of it on its own terms and isn't desperately trying to project a abstract theory onto it. And I almost want to call it like a kind of pragmatism of sorts. Anyways, continuing on, what I try and do is bring common sense and fundamentals to the analysis. But I think the central banks in some ways have really destroyed any semblance of risk versus reward in an organic sense. Obviously, when you're coming in and buying high-yield bonds to generate risk appetite in the hope that you're going to resuscitate the economy, you're pretty desperate. 5% is high-yield today, he went on. Quote, high-yield has become an oxymoron. Portfolio managers, he continues, are buying 5% bonds. There's not a snowball's chance in hell that that compensates you for default risk today or default risk down the road. So what he's saying is 5% on a high-yield bond, considering what the risks are, he's basically saying it's ridiculous. That the risk, it's basically being mispriced, right? You're getting too low of a yield considering the risk you're taking. And let's just skip down to a few other quotes here. Obviously, we can't read the whole thing. So I'm just giving you a few of the quotes just to whet your appetite. So here we have a part of the article where he's talking about when a vaccine is available. And we just got a second from Moderna, as you heard yesterday, which sounds pretty promising, the RNA vaccine. don't know too much more about it than that. But even after a vaccine is available and the world manages to, quote, get to the other side of the mountain, end quote, Rosenberg argued the central banks, quote, are going to remain super accommodative for a long period of time because there will still be a lot of permanent damage to the economy that will have to be restored. And I think he's right. And I would just add, it's like the stock market has become too big to fail because if the stock market goes down now, pensions are so out of whack that the whole system goes down So, you know, you call it the Fed put, the Powell put, the Bernanke put, whatever you call it. It's sort of like if you buy the market, there's a sense that it will be protected by the system and the Fed as long as they can keep the show going. But this act is distorting prices, as we just saw in our Greek bonds or high yield debt. Now, he talks about gold here. And he says that, and this isn't a quote, this is a summary in the article, that real interest rates are going to stay negative for some time to come, fair enough, which will be an ongoing source of support for gold. 
So this is interesting because a lot of people make that connection between gold and negative interest rates, saying that it will be good for gold. Here's the rationale of our great common sense economist, because gold, quote, has an almost perfectly inverse correlation with negative interest rates. So he's basically going on the correlation, not necessarily a fundamental justification. He's just saying there's an inverse correlation that's almost perfect between gold and negative interest rates. So he's basically making the connection, as a few people have. And then he says people are asking him on if they should get rid of gold if there's a potential vaccine. And he responds, I said, what? No, I actually think you should be buying in at a better entry point. And he also said that both inflation and deflation are good for gold. Quote, look, if we get inflation, gold is going to rip because of its classic store of value characteristics. This is why most people buy gold. It's sort of when you first get introduced to gold, you buy it because you, you know, there's the sense of money printing, fiat currency. At least that's where I started. Just a very kind of simplistic, <laughs> very simple view of the world. Um, but you got to start somewhere. But it's fair enough in some respects, right? So inflation. Uh, and now, so here he says it's also a hedge against deflation. And this is a quote, because deflation in a period of these massive public and private debts globally increases the real cost of servicing that debt and creates fiscal instability, and it forces central banks to become even more aggressive. See what's going on here? And I'll just finish his quote, and we're going to unpack it a little bit. People don't see that gold is a hedge against deflation. It is, and so are bonds. So let's unpack this, because I'm going to tell you what I think I read there, and then we're going to just take a closer look. When you have deflation, prices are going down, and that is generally bad for the economy. Now, I think that's a debatable point, but usually if we have, put it this way, if we go back and we saw what happened in March, that gets described as a deflationary episode. Markets crash. We have these huge debts that are being racked up. In order, So he's saying because deflation in a period of these massive public and private debts globally increases the real cost of servicing that debt, right? Because in an inflation, what happens? The debts that you have, let's say you owe a car loan for $10,000. In an inflation, if your currency becomes worth less, then that loan is cheaper to pay off, right? So that's an inflation. He's saying in a deflationary environment, these massive debts that are both public and private actually end up costing more to service, right? So it actually gets more expensive to service your debt. And this forces, in turn, central banks to become even more aggressive. In other words, they have to print or they have to do whatever machinations that they can in order to stabilize the system, which usually involves liquidity, liquefying the system, which is basically, you know, pejoratively gets called printing money, but, you know, buying bonds and uh, buying treasuries and selling them back and whatever. Okay. And finally, just on this deflation inflation, in his view, deflation is going to last for at least several more years and possibly as many as five. Quote, if I'm wrong on inflation, it's not because we're going to have a demand boom. I'm worried about supply constraints. I'm not exactly sure what he means there. 
And he talks about the tech companies. These tech companies have been re-rated as utilities, like Amazon and Netflix. I think that's true. What comes back the latest and the least is going to be office real estate, he predicted. So yeah, office real estate is going to be down for some time, according to Rosenberg. So fascinating interview. Trish did a great job there. Economist David Rosenberg says, Mad Mad World Driving Gold Bull Market. That's by editor-in-chief Trish Saywell. And she also wrote an editorial, which also addressed Rosenberg's talk. And let's see what else. He talks about the election. To me, the big headline on the election wasn't that Trump lost, although he's fighting it hard, but it's how did we not have a Democratic landslide? All we heard about was the blue wave. We didn't get a blue wave. Yeah, and then he talks about how there's a decrease in the Democrats' majority in the House. Sounds like they almost lost the House, which is pretty amazing. Quote, it looks like it could be at least 10 seats, and that's hardly whatever happens with a president being elected from the same party. So there is a real message here that the country seems to want to go center-right. In essence, he concluded, and I think he's absolutely right here, this was a vote against tax increases. I think the boogeyman, the socialist boogeyman, is very real for, for Trump voters. I think the, this idea, like, people are scared by this Green New Deal and what it means for their take-home. I think life in North America has become quite expensive with all the taxes and fees. It's even worse in Canada. Like I lived in Toronto for four years, in Montreal for seven or eight years, and they're not cheap. Like So when you're getting, especially I was in Quebec where there are quite a few taxes, when you're getting taxed left, right, and center, you just kind of say no more, and you don't care about who the candidate is, just no more. And I think that might be what happened here, especially with the kind of programs that the Democrats were talking about. So anyways, you can read more of that. I've gone on and on with David Rosenberg at the Global Mining Symposium. We have two stories there on the northernminer.com homepage. Do check those out. They're absolutely fascinating, as you would expect. I mean, I think of David Rosenberg. I mean, the association is like he's some 18th century, in the tradition of some 18th century economist. He's really got that kind of, uh, you know, he knows his David Hume and Adam Smith kind of feel to him. And I'm, I've, read a few David Hume essays. I haven't read Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. But they do sort of have a a reputation of being somewhat pragmatic. And I think that's maybe why I associate it. It's back to this common sense economist. And I think that's why he uses the word common sense. That's Pocabelli's theory from the bleachers. Anyway, moving on. Endeavor Mining is going to buy Taranga Gold, which would create a top 10 gold miner. It's by Cecilia Jamazmi and Trish Saywell. And let's just look at how big this is going to be. Uh, Endeavor Mining, already West Africa's top gold producer, and West Africa is full of problems from a geopolitical standpoint. So it sounds like Endeavor kind of knows how to run a mining company in that area and survive. And now they're taking advantage, I think, of, of opportunities because a lot of people don't want to be there. So they have agreed to buy Tranga Gold in an all-share deal worth U.S. $1.86 billion, and that would make them a top 10 gold producer. Uh, let's just see if we have the amount of ounces. Now, just a quick little background here. Taranga bought the Masawa project from Barrick only last year. So that's a nice, interesting little thing. So it does, yeah, when you start talking top 10 miner, yeah, they just got a pretty major project from the sounds of it, if Barrick had it. Okay, here's the numbers. The combined miner, which aims to list in London next year, will produce one and a half million ounces of gold per year from six core operating mines in three countries, Senegal, Burkina Faso, and Cote d'Ivoire. 
All right. So we always always like to go back. So Agnico Eagle, we're talking about 2.1 million ounces. So Barrick is 5 million ounces annually of gold. Newmont, we're talking neighborhood of 6 or 7. I'm not exactly sure there. And so, yeah, 1.5 million ounces of gold per year out of West Africa. So pretty interesting. So Guinea has approved a railroad and port plan for its large-scale Samandu project. And you might remember Rio Tinto is involved. That's a massive iron ore project that Rio Tinto was a part of. You might remember it's one of the ones where there's a allegation of a bribe and so there's a bit of a mess over there for Rio Tinto. And yeah, I'm not sure if that's really been settled yet. And yeah, there's there's a whole, we've gone into this story before. So it's a massive project in Guinea. China is involved. Yeah, there's four blocks and there's a consortium, which includes Singapore's winning shipping, Ghanaian mining logistics firm, United Mining Supply, Chinese aluminum producer, Shandong Wei Chao, and Guinea's government won a tender last year to develop blocks one and two in the northern area of Samandu. And Rio Tinto was able to keep the two southern blocks after paying $700 million to the government in 2011. The deal came under scrutiny in 2016, and they, Rio Tinto had to fire two senior managers over a questionable $10.5 million payment to a consultant who helped secure the two blocks, which resulted in inquiries from the U.S. Department of Justice and U.K.'s Serious Fraud Office. Anyway, this thing has sort of, I think, been on ice for a few years, and now it's coming back to life. And now they want to build a railroad and a port in order to service this massive iron ore project in Guinea. So pretty interesting stuff. Finally, uh, copper is surging, and we'll see that. It's actually basically the same as last week, but it's quite high. Uh, There are protests in Peru, and China has launched the ability to trade copper futures on the Shanghai International Energy Exchange. This is by Frick Ells, executive editor of Mining.com. Copper prices set fresh multi-year highs over concerns of possible supply disruptions following unrest in Peru and optimism about the launch of, of a Chinese futures contract open to international investors. Copper gained 2.7% in December amid heavy buying to $3.26 per pound. Copper prices are up more than 70% since March. Peru, this is the kind of quite interesting here, Peru's currency fell to a record low. You wonder, like, this happens all the time, people. Like, uh, Argentina had currency issues. There was like three or four places that had currency issues. I brought them up with Jeffrey Christian, Lebanon, Again, it's back to this Bitcoin thing. These people, like, it's not easy for them to bring, you know, put their life savings in 100 ounces of gold and carry that around. They just put it in Bitcoin. Like, you wonder where this, what's going on. So anyway, Peru's currency fell to a record low over the weekend. Record low. Amid political chaos and the largest protests in the capital city of Lima in decades. Experts have warned that further upheavals threaten the fight against the coronavirus in the country of 32 million the size of Canada, hey, which has one of the world's highest per capita death rates from COVID-19. BMO Capital Markets put out a note that this could cause issues for copper concentrate logistics should the situation escalate. And it sounds like even other metals coming out of Peru could be at risk. And also, Chinese futures, as of November 19, overseas investors will for the first time be able to trade copper futures on the Shanghai International 
Energy Exchange, the new contract priced in Chinese yuan will exclude taxes and customs duty and will be delivered into bonded warehouses, helping the exchange better compete with the London Metal Exchange. The current contract on the Shanghai Futures Exchange is aimed at local traders. So another step forward in China. And finally, I just want to touch on the headline here of this final story. Denizen is planning Canada's first in-situ recovery uranium mine. I noticed Cameco sort of took a hit, but some of these uranium stocks had a bit of a, a pump. We'll see what happens with uranium. I mean, God, that's it's been a 10-year wait for so many speculators. But you wonder when this thing takes off, it'll probably take off big. But who knows? They are ready to resume the formal environmental assessment process for its 90% owned Wheeler River project in Saskatchewan, which is poised to be the country's first in situ recovery uranium mine. So Denizen Mine is lining things up in case things take off. That was by Cecilia Jamasmi, mining.com. Read the whole thing on northernminer.com. And with that, let's turn to metal prices. Metal prices. We'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on November 17th, gold is trading at $1,890.13 per ounce. That is $12 higher than last week's quote, but still under $1,900. Silver is trading at $24.65 per ounce. That is 58 cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $923.76 per ounce. That is $50 higher than last week's quote. And palladium is trading at $2,337.51 per ounce. And that is $145 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading a penny lower at $3.14 per pound. Aluminum is trading a penny higher at $0.87 per pound. Lead is trading $0.03 higher at $0.86 per pound. Nickel continues to climb higher at $7.17 per pound. That is $0.12 higher than last week. Tin is trading a penny higher at $8.35 per pound. And cobalt is trading a penny lower at $14.72 per pound. And finally, zinc is unchanged at $1.19 per pound. Everything seems pretty steady. Precious metals are a little bit higher, apart from palladium, which is a little lower. And all our industrial metals are starting to flirt with their previous highs of the last couple of months. And so wind at metals backs, but no huge breakouts. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have R. Michael Jones, President, CEO, and Director of Platinum Group Metals. And Mr. Jones was co-founder and director of West Timmins Mining, which was later purchased by Lakeshore Gold. He was also a co-founder and former director until 2012 of Meg Silver Corp. And he has a background in geological engineering, and he is a co-founder of Platinum Group Metals. So anyway, 
Michael is super interesting. And again, there's so much to learn here about the PGMs and what it's like to mine in South Africa. But maybe most excitingly, the whole tech side of Platinum Group Metals, which I think I've never heard of a mining company. Some of them indulge in tech, but few sort of create patents that can potentially revolutionize the battery industry. Crazy as that sounds. So judge for yourself. Feel free to leave comments. Send me an email at apocabelli at northernminer.com. I hope you enjoy the interview and I will see you on the other side. Joining me today is R. Michael Jones, who is CEO and president of Platinum Group Metals, and they are based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Michael, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Great to have you. Now, the name of the company is Platinum Group Metals, and I've been watching Platinum pretty closely the last six months, as I feel like it's kind of like the forgotten metal. Now, I know you guys work with palladium and all sorts of metals. What is your focus as a company? So the company name is Platinum Group Metals, which is all six elements, actually, um, which is platinum, palladium, rhodium, iridium, ruthenium, um, and gold in that group, generally considered a part of that group. So um, our focus is on uh, the whole group of metals, but our primary deposit is dominated by palladium. So we have 63% palladium, about 29% platinum. 6% gold and sadly only 2% rhodium. The one thing I wish God gave us was more rhodium, but um, it is what it is. Well, you know, with prices of rhodium being what they are, maybe 2% isn't even that bad. It, it, it all helps, I'll tell you. It goes to the basket price, absolutely. At $11,000 an ounce for rhodium, uh, it all helps. Yeah, I'm sure. So, okay, so uh, palladium makes up the lion's share then at 63%. And palladium has been on a tear. So is it boom times over at Platinum Group Metals or what's the situation over at the company? Yeah, we're pretty excited about what we have. I mean, we have a world-class deposit. So our, our total reserves are 19 and a half million ounces. So, you know, for gold investors out there, I, I you know ask you to go find your favorite gold company that has 19 million ounces of reserves. We own 50% of the deposit and we're in control of the joint venture. So it's a massive world-class deposit with proven and probable reserves. And the mine life in the feasibility study is 45 years on those reserves. And with the resources, it's approximately 100 years. So um, this is a very serious world-class asset, produces in the feasibility study 420,000 ounces a year of that blend of basket of metals. So it's a big mine. And right now we're on the cusp of getting our mining right to be able to build and operate that mine. So that's a very important milestone for us that we're really excited about. That sounds like a huge amount. So the deposit then, or the mine, is it one mine you're talking about? Is it a group of mines? What is your main project? Where is it? Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, so it's in northern South Africa. Um, it's in part of the famous Bushveld complex, which hosts most of the world's PGM reserves. Um, typically, those deposits are dominated by platinum, and this one's unusual that it's dominated by palladium. And our, our deposit is 13 kilometers long. So in the feasibility study, we actually access it with two separate declines into two mining areas initially, and all of that feeds into a central plant. So, you know, in your question, that's right, it's actually a mining complex, really, rather than just a mine. And it was amazing when we were drilling it, 
we drilled one kilometer step outs on the deposit. So we took one kilometer steps at a time and we kept hitting it. So we gave up. We never found the end of it. We just said it goes on out there. Um, <laughs> how, how much do you want? Um, wow. and we started drilling uh, to put it into uh, into reserve. So we, we've drilled about 600 holes um, into the deposit and, you know, around 600,000 meters of core. So six, 600 kilometers of core to define this this reserve. That's so interesting. Now, how long have you had this deposit? And is this your first mining company? Like, how did you find yourself in this situation as CEO of this? Was it a long slog or was did you get lucky? Like, what's the story there? <laughs> yeah, it's a 20 it's a 20 year get rich quick scheme. Um, so as I like to say, sounds, so sounds like mining. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, I've been at this for a long time. We went into South Africa uh, literally 20 years ago. We found a conventional um, platinum mine in a joint venture with Anglo. Um, we built that mine. We did not do well. We we uh, have watched the platinum price go from $1,800 to $800. Um, and we had $100 million worth of debt. So we were in a lot of trouble, actually. And we managed to sell that mine, pay off the debt. And we were very fortunate at the time that that happened, that in 2012, we made this discovery. So this is a fundamental scientific discovery, and it has a lot of characteristics of other mines that I've been involved in finding. So describe it as really just ruler line geology, just taking the ruler line of the great deposits of the world and extending that line further than anybody else did. So I'm a co-founder with, uh, with Peter McGaw and others in Mag Silver which did that in the Fresnillo Silver Camp. Um, that's now over a billion dollar company today going into production. Um, and I'm a co-founder with, with Frank Hallam, the CFO of Platinum Group Metals as well. I'm a co-founder of West Timmins Mining that we sold to Lakeshore for 400 million. So we, we've done this before. Um, this one's taken a little longer, but uh, the rewards are much bigger. So it's something that we, we definitely have the tenacity to stick with to get it valued properly. So it's, it's a pretty exciting time. And and you only I think you only really get one of these once in your career where it's a true world class asset. Is there a technical term for this kind of exploration where you're just sort of putting out the ruler line, extending the ruler line out from previous deposits or like I've heard the term closology. This isn't quite closology. I don't know if you've heard that term. I, yeah, I wasn't sure if it was a real before. term, to be honest, when I first. Yeah, yeah, it. for sure. I mean, that's that's the common technique of finding a mining camp and staying in it. My technique is a little bit different where I find a mining camp and study it extremely carefully. So I know every geological attribute, every geophysical expression, every geochemical expression, every alteration expression of what makes that system great. And then go outside of closology to match the geology further out. And mm -hmm. a key part of that strategy is to get a land position. And I like to start with 100 square kilometers. So if I take that leap, I don't know exactly where it is. So you have to get 100 square kilometers of, of land. In the case of the Waterberg discovery that we're talking about, we ended up with 1,000 square kilometers, um, mm -hmm. which was all open for staking. And when we hit the first hole, we had kind of a panic moment where we had to make sure we had exactly the right trend and get it all. And so in the case of Waterberg, we actually got the entire lobe of the Bushveld complex, not only just a deposit scale, but something that's 25 or 30 kilometers long and took all the land. Um, so that's the advantage of extending that ruler line further 
than anybody else is, there's usually nobody there. Amazing. So with that huge land package, then what you've discovered so far, do you feel like you've only just begun or do you feel like you have a pretty good idea of the scale and nature of the deposit? How are you feeling about that? Like, is it kind of blue sky yeah, ahead or what's your Yeah, sort of that's a good that? question. I mean, it's I, I, I personally think that the thickest and the best part of the Waterberg deposit is probably yet to be discovered. But with the current mine life running out in um, 2066, um, I'll be 103. Um, so I'm not sure I'm going to get to find the full potential of this, to be honest. And, you know, there is a practical point to it where, you know, you find a mine that's at the bottom of the cost curve. It's super competitive. It's bulk mineable. It's 19 and a half million ounces. I mean, there is a point where you have to focus your resources. And so we made the conscious decision as a joint venture to drive this first one into, in forward into construction. And, you know, it's really when there's cash flow that you'll have the luxury of being able to look at that larger land position. But I have no doubt that we 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 didn't just we didn't discover the best part of Waterberg in the first go. I I think, you know, my grandchildren's grandchildren will probably find the best part of this system. And which country are you in exactly? In South Africa. Yeah, You're in, in South, North, Africa. South Africa. Yeah. And how do, how do you find the uh, regulatory environment for miners? Um, do you find it to be a fairly friendly place? I mean, you hear about strikes every so often. Do you have experience with that? Yeah, no, and I've worked and operated there, so um, never experienced a full-on strike. Certainly had, you know, uh, challenges with labor over, over time, but from a regulatory environment point of view, it's actually very straightforward. Um, it is extremely well re regulated, both on an environmental point of view, the social part of it, social and labor plan, um, and the execution of your mining and your mining safety um, is all very well regulated. I mean, it's a hundred year old mining jurisdiction. You know, in previous government, uh, there was a lot of corruption and there was a lot of noise internationally about that in terms of what was going on. With the change with Cyril Ramaphosa becoming president, um, he's changed 18 cabinet ministers that I'm aware of, 31 heads of state enterprises. Um, he's really cleaned up the, the country. And, uh, you know, I think that it's moving forward in the right direction. And, and from our point of view, you know, we've never had an approach to do anything that wasn't directly down the line of the law. Um, you know, and, and I remind investors that, um, you know, Canada and the United States are not simple um, regulatorily wise either. Um, mm. You know, just Good look point. at some of the challenges we have in Canada, you know, building a pipeline or or doing something uh, here. Um, you know, that's a form of political risk. It may have a slightly different complexion to it, but it's still political risk. And so, you know, the one thing about South Africa, I mean, particularly in our area where Waterberg is, it's 40 percent unemployment. So, you know, there's a pretty high interest in 1,100 high-paying jobs um, with lots of training and excellent safety. That's that's definitely got both local government's attention and the national government's attention. So do you process the ore on site? And if you do, what's the process of getting it to the market? Like, do you just ship it to a port somewhere? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So, um you start by grinding the ore, as you do commonly for base metal deposits or gold deposits for that matter. Get it down to the consistency of baking flour, and then you use a process similar to base metal mines called flotation, where you actually get it into a froth and you skim that froth at the top. That has all of the sulfide minerals and the platinum group elements are sitting attached to the copper nickel minerals. So they help you float the, the valuable stuff. 
you also recover the copper, nickel, and the PGMs, so and gold. So once that happens, then that gets dried as a concentrate. You want to get that down to less than 12% moisture. Otherwise, the smelter doesn't like it because it doesn't like heating up water. So you send them a nice dry concentrate, and they take that up to uh, around 1,500 degrees, um, uh, melt it, essentially, take it back to the process that, that God made it, basically, and get that molten, and the rock uh, material goes to the top, and they tap the bottom of the furnace, and the metallic stuff comes out of the bottom. So that's hmm. the smelting process in a simple explanation. So the next steps are, are that you have a wet chemical process that essentially dissolves that metal and gets it into solution. So there's a series of steps to recover all the different metals out of that final um, step. Typically in South Africa, that's done in South Africa. Um, there are four major smelting um, complexes. Um, and that's the stage actually of the project we're in right now is discussion and negotiation around that smelter offtake contract. So who's going to take that concentrate? What are they going to pay for it? How much are they going to pay for each one of the metals versus what you deliver? Um, and we're right in the throes of that as we speak. It sounds like a whole other kind of expertise that's required for that. You know, it's like you can, are, are you a geologist? At, I'm a, uh, I'm in a your geological training? engineer, um, but I've been doing this for 35 years and I have negotiated a smelter offtake contract before. So I've, I've been down this trail, uh, okay. but we also have people that have been doing it for even 20 years longer than me on all the attributes of that smelter contract. And you're right. That's a very specific piece of expertise to make sure you get the maximum value out of your concentrate. So tell me, I, in our uh, last issue or the issue before, we had a story on you guys and it was talking about a battery technology and how you were putting, I believe, palladium, involving palladium, which wasn't common. Could you just tell me about what you guys are up to with battery technology? Yeah, so it's it's a, it's a brand new um, uh, thing um, and a potential very significant market for palladium. So, um, you know, I was literally sitting, I'll tell you the story of how this happened. So I was sitting at home one day thinking about um, the palladium market and 84% of the use of palladium is in autocatalysis in the tailpipe of a car. So if electric vehicles are going to become a big deal, which I think is a ways out yet, but as they increase market share, that's not great for the palladium market because palladium is used in the tailpipe of internal combustion engines. So I was thinking about that, thinking, well, you know, what does palladium do? It's actually a catalyst. And, you know, the good news is the batteries suck. So, you know, don't have to worry about that. But what if the batteries became really good? Well, that, that wouldn't be very good. But, you know, palladium is a catalyst and a battery is just a chemical reaction in a box. So why wouldn't a catalyst have a good effect on a battery? So I entered three words into Google palladium, lithium, battery, not making this up, right? And press go. And sure enough, there was a, a two-month-old technical paper by a postdoctoral fellow, ex-MIT, doing exactly that. So I, I, I read the paper. Um, there are about 40 words I didn't understand, so I had to look them all up. I had to read the paper again. I still didn't understand it. So after about five times of reading the paper, I had a pretty good idea what it said, enough to at least write an email to the scientist to say, hey, this looks pretty cool. Wow. So sure enough, the magic of the internet, two days later, I was standing in his laboratory in Florida at Florida International University, and we became partners. And so that that's the story. 
And, and I brought this idea to Anglo-American because they're the largest PGM company in the world. And they thought it was really cool, like I did. And so over the next two years, we constructed a company called Lion Battery Technologies, and we partnered with Florida International University and Anglo to accelerate this research. So we have about 40 people working on this. Um, we have eight postdoctoral fellows, and we've been granted our first patent which is to mm. put PGMs in a lithium battery. And it turns out that PGMs do exactly what you would think they do. And, you know, the lithium ion battery that we all know and love is kind of coming to the end of being uh, optimized. People talk about 15, 20% improvements like it's a big deal, right? And it's kind of getting up to its theoretical power to weight ratio because of its chemistry. And most battery scientists will tell you that going to uh, a stair step higher, you're gonna need a new chemistry. And so most scientists would say that's probably in either lithium sulfur batteries or lithium air batteries. And it's a different form of how the lithium works. And it changes the power to weight ratio drastically. The problem typically with those batteries is they won't cycle. So you can't get them to repeat what they do. They do it and then they die. And so they show you the power to weight potential, but they get 10 cycles or 50 cycles and they're dead. And it's because the reaction that you want is not the only reaction that's happening. So you're, you're getting a reaction you don't want happening inside the battery. Well, the cool thing about a catalyst is it encourages the reaction that you want if you do it right. And so now you can cycle that battery. So now we're cycling lithium sulfur batteries hundreds and hundreds of times successfully. So that's a huge jump. And that's what our patent is about. And there's a number of other steps we're taking in there, which we're busy patenting right now. So it's truly revolutionary. And it has the opportunity to actually stair step the power to weight ratio. And, and when we say that, we mean like three to 10 times the power to weight ratio of any battery out there. So, you know, and the common pushback I always get on this is, yeah, but PGMs are expensive. I mean, come on, thousands of dollars an ounce. How are you going to put that in a battery? The thing is, you don't need very much of it. First of all, it's in grams. The second thing is, I always ask people with their cell phone, you know, would you pay $100 more if you had to charge this once a week instead of once a day? And everybody yeah. says, give it to me, hit me, right? So... Yeah. So I can afford $100 with PGMs in this phone. Everybody's happy. So I don't need anywhere near that amount of that metal. So it's quite interesting when you compare the utility to the the, the value. That equation gets kind of missed in, in what we're asking these batteries to do. So it's super exciting. It's a brand new market for the metal. And um, it's something that we're on the cutting edge of. And all of that's in Platinum Group Metals, the public company. I was just about to ask that. So if people buy platinum group metals, are they exposed to this patent and to this mm -hmm. technology or is that a separate company? And it sounds like you are exposed. Absolutely. So it's it's a separate private company that platinum group metals owns 52% of and Anglo-American owns 48% of. So we are the controlling shareholder of the technology company and we share it with Anglo-American. Yeah, great value for the mining, but you've got like an exploration program in technology that's like amazing now has the word gotten out on this at all like are you getting interest from the likes of tesla or even like ford or whomever is are the car companies knocking on your door or are they even aware 
So um, we did have a VP of Tesla on one of our calls, um, which was very satisfying because he um, validated all our numbers on our slides about power to weight ratio and current batteries and the current NCA battery that's in the Tesla Model 3. So we have a chart that compares our performance versus the Tesla Model 3. And he said our numbers were spot on. So that was quite satisfying. So they're definitely aware of us. And we've just now come with the grant of our patent um, in the last month or so where now people in the battery world are aware of us. So we've had some very interesting um, approaches. But, you know, right now, Anglo and ourselves are marching forward the intellectual property. Um, we had thought it would probably be about three years until we got to, into a commercial engagement, but that's now been brought forward to the end of year one. We've hit our technical milestones, the patent's been published, and um, yeah, there's a lot going on there. It's a whole other part of our business. And the technology itself, do you feel comfortable with it? Like, is it reliable at this point? Is it something you feel like, okay, we figured this out and now we can go to market with this or we can begin to think about commercializing this? Or is this still in kind of an experimental, well, we think we can do it, but we still need to get our ducks lined up? Like, where is this technology right now? I, I would say that we, we have performance numbers that we know we're going to make a very competitive battery. We've got hundreds and hundreds of cycles and we're seeing performance that we we know we've got a tiger by the tail. Um, right. You've got something as far as we've got see. something. Yeah. Right. yeah. We're, we're confident that this is going to play a role. What we're looking for is what else it can do. So in the published um, patent and the published technical paper, we're putting um, palladium at the cathode location in the battery. Um, it turns out that PGMs can actually play a couple of other interesting roles. So we're busy with that. So we, we think there's more we can do with these metals actually than, than we've actually discovered in the first iteration. And that's why we're scrambling with the experiments to take it the next level to say, well, what if you use it in other ways as well? And that has influence on both the charge and the discharge and the rate of charge and discharge, all of those start to play factors. And these metals are doing the classic thing that you expect them to do. You expect them to be a catalyst and to encourage reactions at pace and successfully. And so, you know, we feel like we've been, you know, we've gone down a dead end hallway in cycling this particular battery and we've got the magic keys that open doors. And now we're just trying all the doors. Which doors does it open, right? That's, right. The, that's the feeling. It's like, let's put it in there and see that open that door. That's cool. Let's try that one. It's quite, it's quite amazing. Um, that is incredible. It's actually really exciting. And even I'd even go so far as to say it's heartening to hear that mining companies, it's almost like a tech company, what you're doing. And it seems like that's kind of exactly what the mining industry needs. I talk about space and deep sea as being kind of interesting areas, but I think this would also kind of uh, be included. So just to wrap up, uh, where do you see the PGM market? Uh, do, do you have, how are you feeling? Like, I mean, I assume you pay attention to, to me, platinum is just waiting to play catch up to both, you know, gold and palladium for precious metals space. Palladium has kind of went uh, parabolic last year. How are you feeling on those two, palladium and platinum, for example? Yes. So, uh, you know, 
I, I would because we have 29% platinum, I'd really like to be optimistic on platinum. Um, I would really like to be, um, you know, unfortunately, I can't quite talk my book there because I think that the move away from diesel engines is quite significant. And I think that the fine particulate matter in diesel exhaust has a big impact on choices. And so I, I see that as a challenged market. And therefore, you know, we've seen European auto consumption of diesel go from 52% down to like 37. Um, and so, you know, I don't see that trend reversing easily. And it's about 35% of platinum's consumption is in autocatalysis and diesel. And palladium does things that platinum can't do currently. So um, these modern engines are super hot, um, the small gasoline ones, and you need palladium um, because of its characteristics up next to the engine. And that's really what's driven this market. It's not a speculation. It's not a bubble. It's actually fundamental, small hybrid and well, hybrids and other small efficient gasoline engines, and they need the palladium up next to them. So that's what's driving the market. And I see that trend continuing quite strongly. And I think platinum production will kind of just sort of go along to meet the market demand. I think you'll have declining platinum production in South Africa because the mines are deep and tired. And, and that declining amount of production will match probably a slowly declining amount of demand. So mm -hmm. I'm not personally super optimistic on platinum. On palladium, on the other side, I am particularly optimistic because I think the trend towards hybrid is going to be significant. And that uses even more PGMs because of the way the engine works. So there's there's a whole sequence there that's going to happen. And you know, the wild card we talked about before is rhodium. Rhodium right. is extremely tight supply. Um, it's $11,000 an ounce, seems high. It's probably going to go higher in my view. And there's a way to substitute out rhodium because it's so expensive, but it takes five times as much palladium again. And surprise, surprise, the palladium-rhodium ratio is about 5x, right? So right. you can see that, that that game is already being played around with. So I'm really optimistic on both rhodium and palladium in the next 10 years. And, and if we're right about our battery, then it's the next 100 years. Interesting. And and just finally on that, like how tight are these markets? Is there a supply problem at all? I I, I think that, I mean, Norilsk produces 40% um, of the world's palladium in Russia. It's a hundred, again, it's like Waterberg. It's a hundred year resource. Mahalaquena that Anglo-American has is a massive mine producing a million ounces a year in South Africa. They're looking at, a, at an expansion there of 50%. So there are resources, but you know we need those resources as those deep platinum mines close. They also have about 30% palladium. So by accident, you knock over palladium production, even though the palladium price is good. So we actually need these bigger projects that are palladium dominant to step up to, to supply the market. But I, I think we have that potential to, to stay uh, you know, in a reasonably balanced market, but, but quite tight. Before we go, do you have any parting thoughts? Is there anything we missed about what you guys are up to that you're excited about? I think the big thing for investors is to actually look at the valuation. I mean, uh, we're, we're, we're sitting with a $100 million market cap against 50% of a 19 million ounce reserve. That, that's a very unusual valuation position and something that, you know, has, has got to change, um, you know, and, and you get the technology play for free. $100 million valuation. There are little crypto tokens that are 
doing nothing that <laughs> practically yeah, I mean, have hundred million dollars there's, there's, there's there's listed soil anomalies in Ontario that are trading at a hundred million dollar market cap. I mean it's incredible. Yeah, so yeah. you see a nice big opportunity there. Okay, great. Well, thank you, uh, R. Michael Jones, Chief Executive Officer and President of Platinum Group Metals out of Vancouver. What a fascinating story. Thank you for joining us and do come on the podcast again. Looking forward to it, Adrian. Thanks a lot for the time. Cheers. This got me thinking, maybe we should do more CEO interviews because I think it's not just about the company, it's also about how they see the markets. In a sense, they have to be analysts of a certain kind. They're leading this company in the bigger external world. They can't be uh, navel-gazing here. So I think what I learned in this interview is CEOs are great resources and not just as uh, infomercials on their companies. They have a lot of interesting things to say. I think we're going to go further down this path, folks. Anyways, thank you for joining me once again on the show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory, you would make my day. And until next week, take care.